Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for a lively discussion about the U.S. elections and the future of populism. My name is Adam Ramey, and I'm Associate Professor and Program Head of Political Science here at NYU Abu Dhabi. I have the distinct pleasure of moderating tonight's program and introducing our distinguished speaker, Professor Francis Fukuyama at Stanford University. This evening's NYU Abu Dhabi Institute program is done in collaboration with the NYU DC Dialogue. As a result of the pandemic, tonight's program is, as you already know, virtual via Zoom. We are making use of the webinar format, and through that format, you have the ability to ask questions via the icon available on your screen. At the conclusion of Professor Fukuyama's talk, I will collate these questions and present them to him until the expiry of our time at 8 p.m. UAE time. These logistical details out of the way allow me to introduce our speaker. Francis Fukuyama is the Olivier Normelli Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Freeman Spigoli Institute for International Studies, Most Backer Director of FSI Center of Democracy Development and the Rule of Law, the Director of Stanford Master in International Policy Program, and Professor of Political Science. With his landmark essay, The End of History in 1989, and its 1992 book-length treatment, Professor Fukuyama's career thrust beyond academia into the policy world and everyday news cycle. In this work, coinciding with the end of the Cold War, he argued that then-triumphant democracy was the end of a long-run evolution of a variety of forms of political order. It was the final form of government that represented the theoretical conclusion of mankind's search for the optimal system of governance. Beyond this work, he has authored, authored no fewer than two dozen monographs and books, along with dozens of articles and book chapters. His most meet, recent manuscript, Identity, the Demand for Dignity and the Politics of Resentment, was published in 2018. In this work, Professor Fukuyama tackled the rise of identity politics, populism, and economic inequality across the globe. Indeed, with the elections of Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro, the passage of Brexit, the success of Poland's Law and Justice Party, not to mention the success of Islamist and Hindu nationalist parties throughout the Middle East, North Africa, and South Asia, this work is especially timely. Today, Professor Fukuyama, undoubtedly informed by the arguments of this work, will speak to us about what next month's presidential election in the United States will tell us about the future of populism both in America and across the globe. And on that note, Francis, on behalf of the entire NYU community, I wish you the warmest welcome and thank you for joining us for this talk. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Francis Fukuyama. Uh, so thank you very much. It's a very kind introduction, Adam. I'm really pleased uh, to be able to speak to you. I've actually addressed audiences in uh, this would be my sixth country over the past week uh, without leaving my uh, without leaving my desk. Uh, normally, I would be on airplanes nonstop, but uh, such is the world uh, we're living in. But I'm really be, uh, glad, actually, to have this opportunity to uh, speak to you, even if it's at this distance. So what I want to do is begin by talking a little bit about the world before COVID and some of the big political uh, changes that had been happening 
how COVID has affected uh, those trends. And then uh, spend some time, you know, the American election now is less than two weeks away. Uh, if you live here in the U.S., it's very hard to uh, get any conversation going that doesn't eventually come down to what the outcome will be. Uh, and so we will talk about that and what might uh, be in store for uh, both U.S. domestic and foreign policy uh, in the elections aftermath. So let me just begin by talking about global politics. Uh, we had experienced this long, what Samuel Huntington called the third wave of democratization that began in 1989. Well, no, I'm sorry, it really began in the early 1970s in Southern Europe. Uh, 1989 was in a way the midpoint and it peaked sometime uh, in the mid 2000s in which the number of democracies expanded from around maybe 30 to 35 in the early 1970s to something well over 100 uh, by the early 2000s. But over the last 10 to 15 years, we have been in what my colleague Larry Diamond has described as a democratic recession. He thinks now that we're moving more towards a depression uh, condition. Uh, so you've had the rise of authoritarian states like Russia and China that are powerful and consolidated and projecting their influence increasingly. But I think more troubling to me is the rise of populist politicians within democratic countries. Uh, and uh, and the, the more general phenomenon of populist nationalism uh, around the world. And as Adam mentioned, this is evident in the rise of the Law and Justice Party in Poland, Viktor Orban's Fidesz Party in Hungary. Every European country now has a right-wing populist um, political party that's dipping at the heels of the mainstream center-left and center-right parties. But really, the, the revolution was kicked off by the Brexit vote in 2016 and Donald Trump's uh, election as president of the United States. Uh, these were the two, you know, among the two oldest and most established democracies. And uh, the fact that a populist politician could rise to power, I think, was a surprise to me and to many other people. So we need to understand that phenomenon. I think that uh, there are really two categories of explanation that have been put forward. The most common one is an economic explanation that has to do with globalization. Uh, we have been living up till now in a, uh, a global, uh, a, a, in a liberal international order. Uh, this uh, order has permitted the free movement of trade, goods, people, investment across international borders. Uh, it yielded uh, incredibly good results in the aggregate. So the global economy quadrupled uh, in size between, let's say, 1970 and the early 2000s. But as I think many of us are aware, um, your trade theory class should tell you that the benefits of this kind of aggregate growth are not necessarily distributed evenly uh, across um, uh, countries. Uh, and in particular, working class people or less educated people in rich countries uh, tended to lose jobs and opportunities to rising middle classes in places like India or China or 
uh, Vietnam. Uh, and this has fueled a, a kind of resentment, uh, uh, especially in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis uh, in the United States, where uh, the disparities between elites that had done extremely well uh, and continued to do well after the crisis uh, was in sharp contrast to uh, ordinary uh, people in Europe and the United States that lost homes, uh, uh, through failed mortgages, uh, lost jobs, uh, and the like. Um, so that's, I think, conventional wisdom in, in many respects. Uh, but I think that there's another explanation that is actually more powerful and important, uh, which is a cultural one. Uh, if economic motives were enough, you know, if rising inequality were enough to explain the rise of populism, what you should have seen uh, in this past decade uh, is a rise of left-wing populism, because it's the left-wing parties that want to redistribute um, uh, uh, resources from rich to poor. But instead, what you saw was a rise of these right-wing uh, nationalist uh, and sometimes ethnically based uh, political parties. and. Um, I think that the reason for that really lies in questions of identity. So what's identity? Identity means the feeling that uh, I think every human being has, that they have a certain inner worth, that their inside is not what is necessarily recognized by the society around them. Uh, and they demand uh, dignity. They demand respect. And it's linked very much to emotions rather than to reason. If you do not uh, have that respect and that recognition, you feel angry, and that's what motivates people to go into politics. It's that kind of anger uh, against disrespect. And I think that in many ways, the, the economic and the uh, cultural uh, drivers of populism overla overlapped, because if you lose a job, you lose respect, you lose your status in the community, in your family, and particularly for you know, white male uh, working class uh, people in uh, developed countries, that loss of status was particularly uh, acute. Uh, and that, I think, has formed the social basis of populist movements in the United States, in Britain, but further afield as well. And, you know, in, in, uh, you know, in Hungary or Turkey or other places where you see this kind of leader emerge, their voting base uh, is sociologically quite different from the voting base of liberal politicians. Uh, it tends to be more conservative, more rural, people that come from second and third tier cities that have relatively lower degrees of education. And that's kind of the social divide that is facing us in uh, one country uh, after another. And I think uh, it explains the... Um, you know, the reason that uh, uh, you've seen this right-wing form of populist nationalism. Now, I am a believer in liberal democracy, and I think that the rise of populism is particularly insidious because it tends to undermine not democracy so much as the liberal part of liberal democracy, because a liberal democracy is really you know, a set of different institutions. So you have the democratic ones that uh, are free and fair multi-party elections that try to hold governments accountable. 
but you also have rule of law institutions. That's the liberal part of liberal democracy. Uh, and those mean rules that are generally agreed to, that are binding on everybody, including the most powerful political actors within a political system. And what's happened with the rise of these populist politicians is that they'll take their democratic legitimacy and use that to undermine the rule of law institutions uh, in their societies. Uh, and we've seen this you know, repeatedly. So Viktor Orban in Hungary uh, has attacked the courts. He's uh, tilted the playing field in terms of free and fair uh, elections. He's put the media uh, uh, under the control of himself or his, his cronies. And all of those have tended to weaken the kinds of checks that exist in a, in a normal liberal democracy against concentrated executive power. Something similar has gone on in Poland. Uh, and this is something that Donald Trump has aspired to. Uh, he's not been entirely successful, but he's really attacked many of the check and balance institutions in the United States. So that includes his own Justice Department and FBI the intelligence community, you know, now the, uh, the health bureaucracy. Um, he's attacked the mainstream media as enemies of the American people. He's attacked judges and courts that have ruled against his favorite policies. Uh, many of these attacks have not been particularly effective, but the aspiration, I think, is very similar as with many other populist uh, politicians. And so, I think the crisis that we are facing today is less a crisis of um, democracy than a crisis of liberalism. Uh, but the two are really very intertwined because ultimately it's the liberal constitutional rule of law institutions that protect populations from elites and from um, uh, you know, the bad decisions of, uh, of their political leaders. Uh, and so this was the world that we were facing. And I think, you know, going beyond the U.S. and Europe, it's been happening in a lot of places. So Jair Bolsonaro in uh, Latin America was actually a new phenomenon. Latin America has had plenty of left-wing populists, like the Perones in Argentina or uh, uh, Evo Morales in uh, Bolivia or uh, 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 Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. But Bolsonaro was a right-wing populist. He uh, evinced many of the same themes. He was very, you know, kind of racist in his remarks about black and brown Brazilians. Uh, and this is a new phenomenon in that region. Um, Narendra Modi in uh, India has been trying to shift uh, India's national identity away from the liberal one that was established really with India's founding as an independent nation in the late 1940s to one based on Hindu nationalism with the passage of a citizenship law that made it very difficult for Muslims to uh, attain citizenship. Uh, and so all of these are very negative kinds of trends that have been going on uh, in the world over the past, uh, uh, over the past I, I would say, at least decade prior to the rise of the COVID crisis. Now, what COVID has done in many ways is to accelerate some of these negative trends because obviously you've got a virus that um, 
that crosses borders and it justifies things like travel restrictions, restrictions on immigration. You know, immigration obviously is one of the big um, uh, bugbears of, of populist politicians. They don't like foreigners and they want to, they tend to blame foreigners for the domestic economic ills that their countries are uh, suffering from. And, you know, the virus gives uh, people a perfect opportunity to reinforce those tendencies. Uh, I think that it's important um, to step back a little bit and understand actually what political and social uh, and epidemiological characteristics really make it uh, uh, possible to to fight the virus. Um, because I think there's been a certain amount of misinformation or, you know, casual, too casual observation. One of the ideas that is out there is that authoritarian governments are better at controlling uh, uh, COVID than democratic ones. And I think that if you look statistically across the, you know, across the world, regime type is actually not that strongly correlated with effective COVID responses. Uh, I think that there are many countries that have done extremely well that are democracies, uh, in fact, have done better than China. Uh, I would say South Korea, Taiwan, Japan, um, Singapore uh, have all uh, been quite effective in, in controlling the virus. In fact, more South Korea has been more effective than China. In uh, Europe, you have Germany, uh, you have uh, a number of Scandinavian countries, you have Canada, New Zealand, uh, and other Commonwealth countries. And so you find variants. You know, there's some very bad performers like Italy and Spain and the United States, but also some good ones. And among authoritarian countries, you find a similar variance. And so although China has managed to effectively lock down its population and control, you know, further outbreaks, that's also been happening in uh, Asia's uh, democracies. And so it really is not the presence or absence. I mean, democracy may have a role, which I'll get to, but uh, I think in the first instance, that's not one of the most important characteristics. I think that if you think about the reasons for good performance, they lie in other domains. So some of them are institutional uh, and in particular, state capacity is very important. State capacity means whether you've got the public health authorities, you know, the doctors, the clinics, uh, the health professionals, and then the resources to support them uh, that make um, a difference in your ability to control the epidemic on a, on a national scale. Uh, one of the reasons I think that a lot of countries in East Asia, regardless of whether they're authoritarian or democratic, have done well, is that East Asia, of all the regions in the world, is one of the places that has emphasized state capacity. Uh, in a sense, that's one of the deepest cultural traditions of Chinese culture is bureaucracy and the idea that bureaucrats should be well-educated and expert uh, and in fact, you know, all of those countries in uh, uh, in East Asia benefit from that tradition. They've got strong public health authorities. Many of them had actually suffered from the SARS epidemic uh, previously, 
and therefore were well prepared when the uh, when the virus hit. Uh, so that's obviously one of the explanatory uh, explanatory factors. Uh, I think another factor really has to do with the behavioral characteristics uh, of the country um, and a, a lot of the social attitudes that people hold. Uh, so one of them is trust. Uh, obviously, if you distrust the government, you're not going to uh, obey a, a mandate that is telling you to do difficult things like stay indoors or social distance or wear a mask. Uh, if you don't trust your fellow citizens, uh, I think similarly, you're not going to cooperate with them in, you know, again, doing measures that uh, would be necessary in, in pandemic control. Uh, and this, I think, uh, has been particularly a problem uh, in the United States where uh, you have a political culture that is very anti-status. This is probably one of the deepest characteristics of, of American political culture. U.S. was born as a society that was rebelling against the concentrated political uh, power of the British monarchy and parliament. Uh, and to this day, you find libertarian or anti-statist attitudes very deeply embedded. So, you know, traveling around Asia, I've had a repeated experience where you talk to you know, you talk to people, colleagues that say, well, yes, the government has a lot of experts. They really know what they're doing. And, you know, we trust them to do the right thing. Uh, in the United States, you never hear this. <laughs> uh, and you particularly don't hear it on the American right, where uh, distrust of government has been one of the largest drivers of uh, political commitment. Uh, and that's led to... Uh, um, you know, that's led to a failure of compliance uh, that has divided along political lines. In addition, trust among Americans has deteriorated very badly. You're probably aware of the deep polarization uh, in American society. And so uh, mask wearing has become a political statement, unfortunately. It should not be, right, that People ought to wear masks depending on whether they judge this to be in the interest of public uh, health. But in fact, not wearing a mask has become a sign of, you know, being a conservative, being a Trump supporter. Uh, and as a result, in red states, it's, you know, very hard to find people that, you know, go to these Trump rallies wearing masks or taking elementary precautions. And this is, by the way, an, a good illustration of what identity drives you to, because, you know, there's a kind of theory out there that people are rational, calculating individuals, and they, you know, calculate what's best for their personal well-being based on the available information, and then that's what determines their behavior. But I think that the social responses to the pandemic show that's unfortunately not true for many people, that their primary uh, goals are set by their kind of, kind of tribal identifications, whether they're on the right or on the left, whether they're red or blue. And that's what determines how they use their cognitive abilities to then justify uh, doing things that are determined more by their political loyalties rather than what is rationally in their self-interest. We see lots of examples of this around the world where people actually act contrary to their uh, self-interest uh, and 
uh, that determines outcomes. And so that's clearly been happening in the pandemic. And finally, you have a question of leadership. Uh, you can have high state capacity. You can actually have a relatively compliant society. But if you have a leader at the top that is giving out wrong advice, uh, it's not going to make any difference. And I think that you've seen uh, you've seen examples of this uh, all over the uh, world, uh, and particularly among populist leaders, because you. Um, have Bolsonaro in Brazil, Manuel Lopez Obrador in Mexico, and Donald Trump in the United States, who all of all three of whom really denied the existence of the virus and uh, didn't take the measures necessary to prevent the spread of the epidemic. And as a result, Brazil, Mexico, and the United States have among the worst records of you know any country uh, around the world. And so that uh, is a factor that matters uh, very much. Now, what's this going to mean for global politics going forward? I think there, uh, actually, I should have started with a general warning that uh, making long-term predictions about a major crisis like the one we're living through is a pretty dangerous uh, game. Uh, and oftentimes, we don't really see the long-term impacts for a number of years. But I think we're already beginning to see uh, some of those impacts. So. One of them is a shift towards East Asia, where uh, this has been going on for some time, but today, many countries in that region have actually returned to normal growth rates that they were experiencing before the pandemic hit, whereas Europe and the United States are both being hit by a second or possibly third wave that's going to uh, hobble their economies well into 20. Uh, 21 or whenever a virus, uh, a vaccine uh, appears. Uh, I think that you've seen already this shift towards uh, increasing authoritarianism where many leaders have used the pandemic as an excuse to increase their executive authority. This happened first in Hungary, for example, where the Hungarian parliament granted Viktor Orban special emergency powers, uh, but it's happened in El Salvador and Uganda. Uh, China, I don't think, would have extended its security law uh, to Hong Kong the way it did this past um, winter had it not been for the fact that the world was distracted by the COVID crisis and they felt that the pushback against this wouldn't be uh, uh, particularly uh, bad. Uh, we've seen this very interesting lag, I think, in the developing world in terms of the impacts uh, because, you know, Last winter, uh, as the pandemic was spreading, the worst cases were all in rich countries. So that was Spain, Italy, the United States, to some extent, France. And in sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia or Latin America, you know, many countries imposed lockdowns and it looked like uh, the disease was not um, uh, that, uh, that bad in those regions. But all of that's changed, I think, uh, since the summer, uh, where I think the weak state capacity and the fact that in many developing countries, for example, a lot of workers are in the informal sector without uh, access to benefits like, like health insurance uh, have started to uh, lead to very deteriorated conditions. Uh, and so infection rates in all of those regions have been uh, rising very rapidly. It, 
proved not possible to maintain quarantines for extended periods of time. People needed to work. And I think that you're going to increasingly see a disparity between rich countries and poor countries where, you know, rich countries are continuing to deal with, you know, the second waves of infections. But in the long run, uh, the damage in poor countries will be really catastrophic in many cases where they're going to lose an entire uh, decade or 15 years of economic gains and uh, see many people fall back into uh, poverty. All right, let me uh, now talk about the United States. Uh, I think that any big crisis like the COVID crisis we're experiencing now uh, is actually both a big danger, uh, but it's also an opportunity. The dangers are pretty obvious, and those are the ones that I just outlined. But there are also big opportunities that are presented. Uh, One thing about an epidemic is that the relationship between cause and effect becomes pretty clear to people. So if you have a leadership that's making very bad decisions or is incompetent, uh, you pick that up much more quickly than in other areas of public policy. Uh, For example, in Belarus, there have been weekly demonstrations ever since the stolen election that Uh, by which Alexander Lukashenko, the dictator of that country, sought to stay in power. Uh, It's gone on now for uh, for 10 weeks. And I think one of the reasons that those demonstrations have been occurring is that he's another of those leaders that denied the uh, impact of COVID. People could see that the government was being responding incompetently. uh, And that's one of the reasons that there's been a popular mobilization uh, against him. Uh, And I think this is, you know, this is something that's weakening both AMLO in Mexico, Bolsonaro in Brazil. Uh, But the biggest impact is really going to be in the United States, I think, with uh, with Donald Trump. In January, I think most of the betting markets uh, and the polling was showing that he had a pretty good uh, chance of being reelected. The economy was doing well. Unemployment rates were at historically Uh, low uh, levels, wages for low-skilled workers had started to rise. And so, you know, the the overall record, economic record, was not that uh, bad. Uh, But the performance of the administration has been uh, extremely poor dealing with the pandemic uh, as a whole. And now, you know, all of the poll results uh, show that there's a a double-digit gap Uh, certainly in the national popular vote, but in all of the critical swing states where American elections are decided because of the Electoral College, um, uh, Biden is uh, is ahead. Uh, And it's possible that not only will Biden win the election, but the Democrats will retake the Senate uh, so that it'll look like it did when Obama won in his first term in 2008, where you have unified democratic control of both branches of Congress and of the presidency. Now, you know, (laughs) uh, many Democrats are really worried about being uh, overconfident uh, because the polls showed that Hillary Clinton was similarly ahead in the 2016 election, and yet she uh, uh, lost. I think that there are reasons for thinking that uh, the situation is quite different today uh, 
back in 2016, first of all, many Republican voters were voting against uh, Hillary uh, rather than for Donald Trump. Uh, and Biden is simply not as unpopular as Hillary was. Uh, then a lot of voters that voted for Trump, you know, were willing to take a chance. They had doubts about him, but, you know, they thought the system needed to be shaken up. And that's why a lot of people who had voted for Obama on a similar basis in the two previous elections uh, voted for Trump. I think at this point, there's hardly a single voter in the country that, you know, still hasn't made up their mind as to whether they like or dislike uh, Donald Trump. The polarization is so intense and the information overload is so great that it's, you know, impossible really to be undecided. There's probably three voters that really don't have enough information to make up their minds at this point. And a lot of the early, I mean, the early voting uh, because of the pandemic and because of the motivation that people have to vote is really extraordinary. Um, the number of mail-in ballots that have already been cast in the election is uh, just through the roof compared to any previous uh, presidential election. Uh, and so I think there's a reasonable chance that um, uh, Trump will go down to defeat. There's a big question that many people have raised, whether the United States can actually hold uh, a free and fair election. Um, you know, I think many Republicans realize that demographically their voter base is shrinking uh, and the only way they're going to hold on to power is basically by suppressing as many Democratic voters as possible, which they've done through a number of mechanisms like voter ID laws, uh, you know, gerrymandering uh, and, and the like. Uh, and that is continuing uh, at a very loud level by the, you know, President Trump at the moment, who's tried to delegitimate all mail-in uh, voting and claiming that if he loses, it can only because of, be because of massive uh, voter fraud. And one of the troubling things is that there's a high level of um, mobilization on the right. People are very angry and they're armed. And there have already been some incidents of violence um, uh, by right-wing uh, militias. And, you know, you have an administration that's calling on their supporters to go to polling places to watch for voter fraud and the like. So, you know, if I think if the results are decisive enough, hopefully we can avoid uh, violence and a, and a big meltdown. But there will certainly be lots of litigation. There already is a lot of litigation and disputes over uh, the counting of ballots, which means that the outcome of the election may not be known for days and possibly even weeks after the election. Uh, let me just finish on a couple of issues. Uh, if you do get a Biden presidency, what kind of changes can you expect? Uh, I think that Biden will face a lot of challenges because, you know, the long-term problem of the United States is not going to go away. That problem is the deep polarization based on these identity uh, issues. And he's going to inherit a country that's got an epidemic ongoing, that has an economic recession, uh, and that's going to force him to pay a lot of attention to uh, fixing both of those immediate problems. And he's got to do it relatively quickly uh, because he does not want to repeat Obama's uh, pattern in 2000, 
1979, where he was elected with a big majority, but then immediately uh, saw a, a Republican comeback uh, two years later. Um, so, um, you know, the, the, the need for some kind of a leader that can really build a broad coalition, uh, uh, keep the splits within the Democratic Party from overwhelming uh, his presidency will require quite a lot of political skill. Uh, I do think Biden is probably better positioned to do that than uh, most people, but um, or most candidates. But uh, it is going to be a huge challenge. There are some areas I think where policy is not going to change very much. I think with regard to China, for example, there's been a big shift in attitudes um, on the part of the Democrats, uh, and so although the tone will be not quite as incendiary as under the current administration. I'm not sure that there'll be a substantive change, but in general, uh, I think that there will be an attempt to return to the kind of internationalism that uh, characterized the United States for the you know the preceding 70 uh, years. Uh, I think that those countries around the world that depend on American support are going to be skeptical because they are going to see that the social polarization continues to exist. Uh, but I do think that a lot of countries will be, um, uh, will breathe a sigh of relief. Um, I guess one final question to leave you with is whether this, uh, if, if there is a democratic victory, is the resulting United States going to look like the United States of 2008, where you know, you, you have this continual flip-flopping between Democratic control and Republican control, which is what's been going on for the last 20 years, really. Or is there going to be a, a larger change? Will this be a realigning, a so-called realigning election? Uh, not to get too deep into American history, but uh, in 1896, we had a realigning election where control flipped between the two parties virtually every two years in the previous uh, two decades. But then in 1896, with the election of McKinley, the Republicans then took control of both houses of Congress and the presidency, and they held on to it for the next 16 years. And the social situation was in many ways similar, that in the late 19th century, the United States had to decide whether it was a rural, agrarian, kind of backward-looking society, or whether it was going to be an urban, industrial, open uh, uh, country, uh, you know, voters could not decide for a long period, but all of a sudden in that election, they made a choice in favor of the more modern uh, version of America. And in a sense, that's the choice that we've been facing uh, between the red states and blue states, or red America and blue America is, you know, what kind of uh, America do we want in the face of a globalization that's opened up borders and moved people, uh, and so forth. And there's, you know, at least a small possibility that this election could be the beginning of a broader realignment because the demographic factors uh, are all pushing in that direction where, you know, the Republican voter base of white voters, uh, white, you know, working class voters is shrinking fairly steadily and the larger democratic coalition is growing. Uh, I don't know whether that's going to be the case. Uh, 
it's probably not likely because I, I do think that it will take, you know, a longer time for that to happen, but uh, it's some it's a possibility we need to keep in mind. So with that, thank you very much for your attention, and uh, I look forward to uh, any questions or discussion um, uh, you might have. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much uh, for that uh, that perspective on on both the the globe and, and populism, uh, and, and particularly on the U.S. toward the second end. We've got quite a lot of questions um, that have been popping up in the uh, the Q and A section, uh, so we'll try to do our best to get through all of them. Um, I think that you know the the questions kind of boil down to one of two broad macro categories. Some focus on the U.S. and some focus more more globally. Uh, given that you just were talking about the U.S., let's. I think it makes sense to kind of pick up there, and then we can go back and, and think more broadly about the populism, the rest of the world, and where things are going from here. Um, so, one one person, uh, you know, in our audience asks uh, about the future of the Republican Party post Donald Trump. Indeed, sort of this this right wing populism that that overtook the Republican Party. Uh, uh, by storm in 2016 with Donald Trump's winning the Republican nomination and subsequently the presidency, um, in many respects, kind of drove a chasm between the sort of more traditional establishment wing of the Republican Party and 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 this sort of Trumpy populist base. Do you think that this is going to hold up? Uh, you know, in the you know in the event that say Donald Trump were to lose, and that indeed most of the polling and 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 data, whether we look at the state level or national level, that's where things are pointing at this at, at this time. And if Trump were to lose, do you think that the, a populist Republican Party is here to stay, a la William Jennings Bryan and the realignment after eighteen ninety six that you talked about, or do you think that uh, that there's a chance that the you know that the Republican Party might be able to shake off this populist tinge? Uh, so based on the experience of a lot of parties that lose power, I think in general, it usually takes uh, several election cycles, even after a catastrophic loss, it takes a few election cycles before it really sinks in that, you know, their fundamental voter base and positions are really not viable in the long run. Uh, so I would not expect any rapid changes. I mean, Trump himself is not going to go away. I mean, if he you know, assuming he he peacefully leaves office, uh, he's not going to fade uh, into the background. He's going to be there as a vocal critic of whatever uh, Joe Biden does. He spawned a whole generation of uh, uh, imitators in the media and uh, uh, in the Republican Party that are going to keep up a kind of relentless uh, barrage of criticism. Um, so. I think that that's uh, uh, in that in that sense that's not going to go away. One of the factors I didn't talk about, but I think is very important, has to do with the media environment that we face right now, because that's really one of the things that's changed very much from previous um, uh, decades. Uh, with the rise of social media and the internet, you know, it's basically taken away all of the intermediaries that used to do fact checking and and you know, supervise editorial content so anyone can say anything. And um, it's just been amazing to watch the rise of QAnon, this, you know, this conspiracy um, uh, uh, theory that, uh, you know, I would say a year ago was just a 
property of a really fringe group of people. But there's some more recent poll data that's showing that, you know, a majority of Republicans believe some version of this conspiracy theory. And, you know, it's a very extreme theory. I mean, you know, there are tunnels under Washington, D.C., where the Democrats are holding children in order to cannibalize them and drink their blood. And, you know, it's all being orchestrated by George Soros and, and, and this sort of thing. Um, now, one of the reasons it's spreading is that the president himself has been encouraging it. I mean, it's just kind of a mind-boggling idea that you could have a person with that kind of authority and importance that would actually uh, support this kind of extreme, nutty, you know, just completely off-the-charts idea. But, you know, that's the kind of world we're living in where the Internet has allowed anybody to say anything. Uh, and therefore, the two sides are getting very, very different um, portrayals of reality. Uh, and that's not going to change uh, once the, um, you know, if, if the Democrats win in November. Uh, so all of that suggests that, you know, uh, the problem is going to stay there. I would say on the other side, um, there is this big problem that the Republicans have, as I said, with their shrinking demographic base. You know, in a way, they're, they, they had a choice, you know, after the loss to Obama, where they, a lot of the more liberal parts of the party say, you know, we need to appeal to a broader base of people. Uh, it can't just be white, working class, angry people. It's got to include Hispanics and women and more educated professionals and that sort of thing. And that just completely got shut down. And, and Trump kind of represents the negation of that strategy. But in the long run, I think it's the only way that that party is going to survive. I mean, right now they're reduced to basically a voter suppression strategy as the way to stay in power. And that's just not, that's not a healthy you know, uh, uh, resource to, to lean on. Uh, uh, and so, uh, you know, one thing I think that's, interesting, just interesting fact out there is that I think there are now up to nine or 10 Republican former governors that have endorsed Biden. Very few elected officials. I mean, I think virtually no elected officials have done that, but those that are out of office have expressed a pretty clear skepticism for where the party is going. And that indicates that maybe down the road there'll be at least the nucleus of a uh, more liberal Republican Party. They won't. They'll be shouted down. I think in 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 the immediate aftermath of the election. But I do think that there is a nucleus that you know that may grow over time. So I think that's kind of where the party is right now. And sort of thinking about the Democratic side of the equation again, sort of you know Biden is certainly. Uh, you know, a, you know, he is he is a centrist within the broader Democratic Party coalition. Um, but thinking about a, a Biden presidency, certainly there is a um, a more populist wing of the Democratic Party with sort of the AOC Bernie wing of the party. If Biden were to enter office, I mean, do you see uh, a sort of a resurgent left wing populism uh, coming from that crowd? Uh, in, in, oh, in sure. Politics? Yeah, no, that's that's obviously going to happen. I think that, you know, many uh, people in the progressive wing of the party have been holding their noses and support, supporting Biden. Uh, he was really not their first choice at all. But 
I think they kind of see the necessity of defeating Trump. And so, you know, they've jumped on his bandwagon. But I think uh, the moment that he wins, and particularly uh, if they retake the Senate and, and really get control uh, of the government as a whole, uh, they're going to want to um, take control of the agenda. Whether they'll be able to uh, is... Uh, well, I mean, it's going to depend on the extent of the election victory and who gets elected and so forth. But, uh, you know, I think that it's still going to be really, really difficult, even with a big landslide for the Democrats to govern from that kind of a left-wing um, uh, position. Uh, I think that you'll still need, you know, some degree of uh, Republican support. And so I think, you know, what Biden is clearly hoping to do is to be able to peel off you know, to get a majority in the Senate and then to be able to peel off, you know, maybe three or four or five Republican senators uh, uh, so that they can actually pass uh, uh, real legislation on a stimulus, on health care, on uh, other sorts of things. But it's going to be a real fight. And I think the criticisms of Biden for not doing enough uh, uh, and actually for being bipartisan are going to accelerate and get very loud uh, if uh, if the Democrats win. And, you know, one of the things that you 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 touched on in your talk was this idea that, you know, and, and you know, Trump made this offhand remark a few weeks back about uh, when, when asked about peaceful transition of power and kind of gave these sort of vague musings, oh, well, if the election is fair and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, do you, you know, what chances do you see of, so say Trump were to lose, of him actually uh, trying to refuse to concede? And, and what implications do you think that would have for American politics and for liberal democracy more broadly? <laughs> well, they're all bad. Uh, you know, it wasn't just one offhand remark. I mean, he's been virtually saying every single day for the last three or four months that he expects that the, if he loses, that the election will have been uh, uh, affected by massive uh, voter fraud, that essentially all mail-in ballots are illegitimate and that, you know, they shouldn't be counted after uh, election day and, you know, and so on and so forth. And so he's clearly anticipating, you know, the possibility that he'll lose. And he uh, is definitely keeping open the option of contesting the election's legitimacy. Um, and already, you know, there's something like more than 200 lawsuits in the different states, you know, because once the election happens, all the action moves from the federal government to the states uh, and the state electoral commissions. And so there's just been a raft of lawsuits where um, mostly Republicans are challenging, you know, the legitimacy of mail-in voting procedures. The Supreme Court just yesterday decided against, uh, you know, a Republican effort to prevent Pennsylvania from counting votes past election day. Um, but, you know, especially in the swing states, there are many, many legal actions like this, many of which are still undecided. And so the courts will immediately get dragged into this. Um, if it's a close election, the situation gets really complicated and, and potentially could lead to a constitutional crisis. Uh, because there are a number of swing states like um, uh, uh, Wisconsin and, and Pennsylvania, uh, you know, where you have uh, Democratic governors and Republican legislatures, 
the laws, you know, the last time we had a really contested election was 1876 and the Tilden Hayes election, where the winner was not picked, you know, until like three days before the inauguration. Uh, and, you know, you could get a repeat of some of those uh, issues where the states cannot uh, decide on a, a slate of electors and, you know, the Republican legislature and the Democratic governor will send competing slates uh, to be counted. Uh, and then the courts will have to step in and try to decide which one is legitimate. Uh, and, you know, people will be out in the streets, you know, demonstrating uh, uh, for and against uh, and so forth. Uh, and so you can really spin out an extremely messy scenario. Uh, I think most people think that if the uh, voting goes very, very heavily against the Republicans that we might be able to uh, avoid this. But, you know, uh, Pennsylvania, for example, is, I think, likely to see a blue wave. I mean, you know, they're not allowed to even start counting uh, mail-in ballots until election day. Uh, there's been an extraordinary surge of uh, mail-in ballots that have already been sent in. Uh, and I think there it's pretty clear that on election day, Trump will do better uh, or is likely to do much better than Biden. But as these mail-in ballots are counted uh, in now, I guess they've got three days after election day, uh, the result may swing from Trump to, to Biden. And, you know, that's really where you'll get these loud protests, especially from the president, that this is, you know, the result of voter fraud and, and, and so forth. Uh, so I think, you know, there's lots of very worrisome scenarios by which uh, we would not be able to actually decide the election uh, cleanly uh, and in which there could, you know, actually be a breakdown of the process, a constitutional uh, confrontation, violence, all sorts of things. No, that cer certainly would not be pretty and would be very detrimental to, uh, to institutions within the U.S. and certainly to the U.S.'s image abroad. Um, Coming back to this um, this idea about um, you know right wing populism and left wing populism, and so I think one of the most striking things is that Trump was able to essentially take over the Republican Party uh, in a in a relatively short span of time, and 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 the the messaging and the you know whether it's on trade or immigration or foreign policy or what have you, uh, you know Republican elites have kind of followed in lockstep, and then you've got Joe Biden winning the Democratic primary. Uh, pretty handily, and, uh, and then choosing as his vice presidential uh, uh, nominee, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, who, you know, and, and sidestepping uh, the more populist wing of the Democratic Party, folks like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. What do you, what do you take of this? Why didn't Biden go with somebody uh, who was of that more populist, left-wing populist deal? Oh, I think, you know, it was a strategic calculation that at the moment that he chose Kamala Harris, he was already well ahead uh, in the polls. I think that he figured that he could probably take for granted a lot of the progressive vote, you know, voting for him because those people, uh, although they didn't necessarily like him, really hated Trump and therefore would be motivated to go and uh, vote. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, American elections are not determined by the popular vote. They're determined by the Electoral College. And in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, 
you know, states like that, um, uh, a very liberal vice presidential candidate is just not going to just not going to fly. Uh, so I think it was a you know very sensible strategic uh, calculation. Um, but that just means that the you know the potential unhappiness uh, on the left wing of the Democratic Party is all going to come pouring out. You know, uh, once he actually does become uh, president. All right. And, and sort of thinking a, a little bit more globally at the moment. So let's, again, you know, follow conventional wisdom, though. As you've noted, this is a different election than 2016. But I remember four years ago doing an NYU Abu Dhabi Institute event, and everyone seemed pretty sure that Trump was going down in that election, too. So but let's just imagine the conventional wisdom is true and, and Trump loses and, uh, and and Biden takes office in January. Um what do you think that's going to do to sort of right-wing populism globally? Is it going to uh, stall the momentum that that movement's gained in recent years? Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, uh, so I think that global populism has been in trouble uh, ever since the beginning of the epidemic. It's very interesting, for example, in Germany. And actually, this is a general, a broader pattern that should give people a little bit of hope that uh, effective governance actually can reverse uh, cynicism and build trust and support. Uh, Angela Merkel, you know, faced a populist uprising from the AFD, from the Alternative for Germany party, uh, that was very similar to, you know, the populisms in, in other places. But because of her relatively successful handling uh, of the COVID crisis, she's seen her poll numbers rise, you know, pretty substantially. Um, uh, and the AFD, uh, by contrast, has really lost a, a lot of support. Um, in Mexico and Brazil, I think, you know, those presidents, those populist presidents have come under a lot of uh, criticism and pressure. They've seen their poll numbers uh, fall. Bolsonaro has managed to save himself for the time being because he's supported this extremely generous cash handout program uh, that has convinced a lot of uh, uh, poor Brazilians that he's okay, uh, uh, but still, um, you know, he's facing a lot of headwinds. And so, um, oh, and one other, you know, interesting example that just happened is Jacinda Ardern in uh, New Zealand, where, again, you had a very liberal politician who, you know, led a very effective COVID response, and her party now has won a majority in the parliament, which under their voting uh, system uh, has really never happened ever since they adopted this um, uh, mixed member proportional uh, system. And so I think that, you know, uh, a loss, a big loss by, by Trump in the election is going to um, deflate the sales of a lot of populists uh, around the world. Um, but, you know, these movements are driven by you know, a lot of other factors other than imitation of, of one another. Uh, and so in India, for example, Modi uh, really doesn't depend on kind of outside encouragement from fellow populists around the world. He's, you know, riding his own kind of internal wave of, you know, of, uh, of social support. But certainly Europe uh, is going to pay a lot of attention to what goes on in the United States, and, and it will have a significant effect. 
and sort of staying on this sort of global uh, uh, conversation, you know, thinking about, you know, we you talked, both of us mentioned in, uh, toward the beginning, the sort of law and justice party in Poland and sort of Poland's an interesting case. You, know, you think about going back to the end of the Cold War, the solidarity movement was, 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 was so active and sort of helping to bring down the communist regime and opening up Poland uh, to the West and to a more pluralistic society. What happened? Why, why, why do you think Poland in, embraced this sort of this 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 sort of this populist uh, approach to politics and eroding democratic institutions? What, what happened? Uh, so first of all, uh, in Pol- well, so it's it's a puzzle uh, because Poland was the single most successful EU country in the decade preceding the rise of the Law and Justice Party. Uh, and that's, you know, further evidence that it's really not the economics that's been driving uh, the rise of populism. Uh, it's also one of the most ethnically homogeneous countries. They did not um, take a lot of migrants from Syria during the Syrian refugee crisis. Uh, there are really virtually no important minorities, either religious or ethnic, in that country. And so they're not a lot of pre-existing cleavages that a populist could build on, as race has been a big issue here in the United States. Um, so that actually deepens the puzzle that you've uh, uh, that you've suggested. I think that if you look at the voting base of the Law and Justice Party versus the voting base of the liberal parties, you do see a very similar kind of cleavage where the Law and Justice Party draws from people that live in small towns, in rural areas, outside of Warsaw and, you know, the bigger Polish uh, cities. Uh, And, you know, I I think that many of the liberal elites that had really run Poland um, since the transition uh, to democracy in the 1990s, you know, had really lost touch with a lot of those people. you know, it turns out that gay marriage and LGBTQ rights, um, you know, we, we saw gay marriage being legalized in one country after another in this extraordinary, you know, uh, extraordinarily short period of time. And everybody patted themselves on the back and said, you know, people really have accepted this and become much more uh, tolerant. But I think actually that wasn't the case, that uh, this was something that was being pushed by, you know, by liberals in countries like Poland. And there actually was uh, a lot of unarticulated resistance to that, uh, that has now been articulated by these right-wing parties. So the, uh, you know, Duda, the the guy that uh, came out in the last, on top in the last Polish election, uh, said that basically, you know, LGBTQ rights are the, they're worse than communism, or gay marriage is worse than communism, you know, as a threat to uh, uh, Christian values and to traditional, you know, Polish identity. Um, and that uh, shows that, um, I don't know, it's a, it's a, it's a strange thing because Poland is now highly polarized between, you know, these social conservatives and the liberals uh, in a country that really, as I said, had no prior social 
uh, cleavages. And I think it just shows that human beings really like to sign up for teams. Uh, you know, that once one of these cleavages gets going, uh, it becomes part of your uh, identity. Uh, and, you know, in this case, it, it really focused on uh, these kinds of conservative values about the family and about, you know, the role of the Catholic Church and uh, and so forth. So that's about as good as I can do in explaining that. Um, plus, which, well, what, and <laughs> one other, one other, two lessons for liberals. So one is that I do think that, as in many other uh, countries, uh, a lot of the liberals in Warsaw were really out of touch. They just didn't perceive what was going on uh, among their fellow countrymen that didn't live in in you know big urban uh, agglomeration. And the other thing had to do with so-called neoliberal economic policies, because one of the things that's actually been very um, important for the Law and Justice Party's popularity is this family subsidy that they implemented. Uh, that had been rejected by the previous uh, uh, you know, centrist government as too expensive. Um, and you know, the Law and Justice Party now gives a you know, pretty hefty subsidy the more children you have, you know, the, the bigger your subsidy, that it really helps out a lot of struggling families. And that's turned out to be wildly popular in that country. Uh, and that's one way in which the new right differs from the old right. You know, the old right was kind of Thatcherite or Reaganite. They, they didn't like government spending on social programs. But this new right is perfectly comfortable with that. And, you know, the Polish party is, is one, you know, is one example And just sort of thinking a little bit more broadly here, I mean, the fact that we've seen this populism emerge across so many different countries and so many different contexts, you know, it suggests some degree of, of universality that, that despite the fact you have different local political circumstances, there's, there's, there's something there. And, and you know, do you think that this, and indeed it's not the first time in, in, in the last century that we've seen the rise of, of this sort of populism, though the nature of it is, def, is certainly a bit different. But that raises a question of, is this, is this sort of populism or this sort of populist type moment something inevitable to, uh, to our political order? Uh, you know, I actually wrote a, um, a kind of extended essay called Liberalism and Its Discontents, which I published. I, I started a new magazine called American Purpose uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, which you, you can find the essay there, uh, you know, talking about the strengths and weaknesses of liberalism. So liberalism basically is a mechanism for governing over diversity. It really emerged in the 17th century after the wars of religion in Europe, where, you know, Liberals said, look, we're killing each other over whether we're Protestant or Catholic, so let's just put that into private life, you know, take it out of uh, contention. The society is not going to focus on the good life. It's just going to focus on a basic set of rules that will allow us to coexist. And that's been the strongest argument for liberalism ever since, that if you have diverse societies in which you cannot agree on strong forms of community uh, liberalism is the solution because it's a kind of live and let live, you know, set of rules that 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 permit um, a peaceful resolution of disputes over these deep issues. The problem with liberalism has always been the same: that 
uh, people want this feeling of community. They, they want strong ties. They want to be bonded with other people. That bonding can be on the basis of shared religious beliefs. It can be on the basis of shared ethnicity, culture, language. You know, that's what nationalism is all about. And so the challengers to liberalism have always made a kind of similar pitch, you know, that liberal society tolerates everything. Uh, you know, we believe in, you know, X, you know, that that's really the basis of our national identity or that's who we as a people really are. And the people that don't believe in X or aren't X, you know, uh, we need to exclude them from our, uh, you know, from our community. Uh, so that that human longing for strong ties and bonding uh, with people similar to themselves has you know, always kind of been the enemy, uh, I think, of liberalism. Uh, you know, there's a, one of these right-wing critics of liberalism uh, in the recent debate, you know, just in the past year that made a remark that, you know, liberalism is kind of thin gruel, you know, that basically anything goes in a liberal society and people want something more than that. So I think, for example, in Eastern Europe, when people were living under a communist dictatorship, they really didn't like it. They hated, you know, not having any personal individual freedom. And so they all celebrated when the communist dictatorships fell in 1989 or 1991. Uh, and they, um, you know, and they enjoyed this newfound ability to say and think, you know, whatever they wanted. But over time, uh, I think they started taking that for granted. You know, that just seemed like a normal condition. Of course, we can say whatever we want. Uh, what I actually don't like is the European Union telling me that I have to label my food a certain way or that I have to let refugees in or, you know, some other thing that they didn't like. Uh, and, you know, that then turned them towards uh, politicians that were offering this stronger form of community. And by the way, that happens on the left as well. I mean, I think a lot of contemporary identity politics on the left are people saying, look, we want social justice. We want equality for African-Americans, for women, for gays and lesbians. And, you know, you're compromising liberal politics. You know, your bipartisanship isn't getting us to where we need to go. We need to go a lot faster. Uh, and therefore, there's a lot of pressure to, you know, suspend liberal rules um, uh, in favor of things that are much more decisive. And so that, I think, is kind of the general problem with liberal politics. It's slow, it's consensus-based, it has to tolerate lots of views that you really don't like or find repugnant, and that, you know, isn't satisfying to a lot of people. And that kind of naturally follows into another question that that's come up, and several people in the chat box have asked about it, is sort of, what can liberalism do sort of as an effective response to this, to this threat that's posed by this populist moment? I mean, is it, is it just a matter of kind of waiting it out and let it fizzle, fizzle out? I mean, you kind of already alluded to the fact that uh, poor handling of the coronavirus situation is leading many populists, uh, so the, the populist movements that have been successful around the world to be suffering uh, uh, in the polls in their respective countries. But is it, is it good enough to just wait it out or, or what, what should, you know, the, the sort of defenders of liberal democracy do in, in the wake of this moment? Well, uh, you know, there's several things. So obviously, uh, effective governance is a pretty good advertisement for 
you know, a liberal politician. So you, you want to do that. Uh, I think that national identity actually remains a very important issue. And that's something that many liberals uh, don't understand. I mean, liberal liberalism itself is a kind of universalist doctrine. Uh, liberals don't believe in rights for Americans or rights for Englishmen. Uh, they believe in human rights. Uh, and, you know, in theory, they're just as concerned with a human rights violation in Bangladesh or Uganda as they are in their own country. Um, and so there's been a tendency to downplay, um, uh, you know, patriotism and national identity. But in my view, you have to have national identity if you're going to have a successful democracy. I mean, national identity is basically a common shared set of narratives and values uh, about the legitimacy of your own institutions and society. If you don't have that, uh, if there's fundamental disagreement on their legitimacy, then I think you end up like Bosnia or Iraq or Syria, where you essentially have these communities that are all living side by side, but they really don't feel that they've got anything in common. And in the extreme form, you know, it leads to uh, it leads to political breakdown, as it did in uh, in Syria. Uh, but the national identity uh, uh, needs to be democratic and it needs to be liberal. You know, it needs to be built around political values rather than around race or ethnicity or religion. Uh, because, you know, those three characteristics are fixed at birth um, for the large part, uh, and they exclude people in diverse societies that don't share, you know, the race, ethnicity, or religion of the of the dominant uh, group. And so to the extent that there's national identity, it's got to be based on political values like the value of democracy itself or like the value of uh, individual freedom and, and uh, equality. Uh, and I think that emphasizing, you know, uh, emphasizing the right kind of national identity uh, is important. Uh, in my book, Identity, I give this example of uh, that, that's portrayed in the film Invictus, which is about the 1996 Rugby World Cup game that was held in the newly democratized South Africa. And, you know, Morgan Freeman plays Nelson Mandela, who... Um, you know, so the, the blacks played soccer and the uh, whites played rugby in South Africa. And they were hosting this, the Rugby World Cup. And Nelson Mandela took it on himself to convince his fellow black South Africans to support the Springboks, which was the almost all-white uh, national rugby team, which met a lot of resistance from, you know, his fellow black members of the African National Congress but I think that that's what it means to build a national identity, uh, you know, around kind of shared values. In this case, you know, <laughs> shared value is sports, you know, which actually for most people is a hugely emotional, uh, you know, form of attachment. But I think that that's a good example of what a leader can try to do to build uh, solidarity on a on a broad basis and not simply feed an existing uh, polarization in a, uh, uh, in a society. There's other things that, you know, countries can try. I think national service, I, I really like the idea of national service. Uh, 
You know, I think that countries like South Korea or Israel that have mandatory national service, military service, uh, you know, benefit from that. But I don't think it needs to be military. I think there can be forms of civilian service that could serve. So there's other things I think, uh, you know, that can be done to build a kind, you know, overcome polarization and, and, and you know, work towards a, a kind of greater sense of shared uh, citizenship. All right, and, and I think the sort of the, the, the last collection of questions that we've got here largely focus on sort of the internet backing out from, from specific cases and thinking about the global order and what the implications for this moment are on the, on the international order. And so, you know, one of, one of our uh, audience members asked about the role of populism, particularly in the European context, places like Hungary and the UK, uh, thinking about Brexit and, and so on, about the, the future of European integration. Um, you know, re- regardless of whether these parties stick around for a while, and certainly some will, will be around longer than others uh, from country to country, what do you think is going to happen in terms of European integration as a consequence of the populism that we witnessed in the recent past couple of years? Well, I don't think that the European project is going to move significantly towards greater uh, federalism, meaning greater, you know, stronger uh, pan-European institutions, because I just think that what both the uh, Euro crisis and the migrant crisis uh, demonstrated is that the loyalties to your, you know, your particular nation state uh, really trump, you know, that kind of broad solidarity. But uh, I think the EU did a lot better in the COVID crisis than it did in the Euro crisis. Uh, you know, there was an agreement um, uh, over the summer uh, led by France and Germany to float euro bonds for the first time in the EU's history, and then to use those funds to subsidize basically the the stronger northern European states would be subsidizing the weaker southern European states. That was a conspicuous failure during the euro crisis, you know, when basically... Germany and Denmark and Finland all said, hell no, you know, we're not going to send any of our uh, tax dollars to, uh, to Greece and Italy. You know, it's their fault that they're in this problem. Uh, it's not our responsibility. And I think, um, you know, a lot of European leaders, particularly uh, in Germany, uh, and I give Angela Merkel credit for this, you know, realized that that was a big mistake and that there has to be more flexibility and more solidarity across Europe. Now, the current problem uh, has shifted from being a north-south problem to being an east-west problem because Eastern Europe has started to go off in this separate direction. You know, So you now have these populist parties in uh, Poland and Hungary, and actually the disbursement of those eurobond uh, monies is being held up over a dispute as to whether... Uh, they should actually go to Poland and Hungary. Uh, you know, I, I'm not a European, so I don't have a right to take a position on this. But if I were a European, I would put conditions on this money because I think especially Hungary has really violated some extremely basic European democratic norms, you know, in the way it's treated its judiciary, uh, in, in the way it's treated the media in, in all sorts of respects. And they should not get a pass on this, which they've been getting up till now because of their importance, you know, in the European uh, Parliament. 
and so I would think that, you know, before you get any of this bailout money from the EU, you've got to meet certain basic conditions of uh, democratic governance. But the problem is they're sort of stuck in this position where the very countries that are violating these rules also have the power to veto decisions by the, you know, by the EU itself. And this is one of the structural weaknesses that, you know, the EU is very strong in certain areas having to do with regulation and product labeling and so forth, but it's extremely weak uh, in other places, which has to do with fiscal policy and foreign policy, where any one of the member states can veto uh, a decision by the, you know, by the collectivity. Um, and so, you know, I think within the constraints imposed by that rather awkward structure, they've done, uh, you know, they've done reasonably well, but they're still hobbled by that structure. Uh, you know, for example, they really can't criticize China for anything right now because a number of Eastern European countries are getting, you know, investments uh, as part of China's Belt and Road Initiative and uh, they don't want to antagonize China. And so therefore the EU can't criticize what's going on with the Uyghurs or, uh, you know, human rights or the South China Sea or anything else. Um, so that, again, I think demonstrates kind of the limits of European decision-making right now. And in thinking about the international system, you know, so the, the during the Cold War period, we essentially had this bipolar world, the sort of the U.S. and its, and its Western democratic, liberal democratic allies on one side, the Soviet Union and its Warsaw Pact uh, and, and, and affiliates on, on the other side. Um, and then, of course, with the fall of communism, you, you have this, for lack of a better word, unipolar world of, you know, centered around the U.S. Uh, sort of, you know, keeping the peace and uh, throughout the world. But, of course, the aftermath of the Iraq War and, and the financial crisis, the U.S. has been, in, you know, since the Obama administration and, uh, you know, bleeding into the Trump administration, been increasingly kind of stepping away from its role as sort of this... Uh, this global hegemon, uh, and and so where do you think this is going in terms of the international system? Are we headed toward a multipolar world, or sort of worlds where there's sort of clusters of powers, or what? What do you see as the future of the international system here? Yeah, I think in the uh, 2010s, it kind of looked like we were heading towards a multipolar world in which the U.S., Europe. Russia, China, Brazil, South Africa, all would be kind of independent power centers. Uh, and that would be a kind of more normal distribution of power in the international system. I think today uh, it looks increasingly bipolar. I don't think we're going to get back to the strict bipolarity of the Cold War, but it is going to be uh, much more bipolar um, because, you know, Russia and China have really, you know, consolidated as, as authoritarian countries and they cooperate a lot. You know, they vote together in the Security Council. They oppose the same kinds of, you know, things like, uh, you know, the demonstrations in Belarus and, and, and so forth. I think that many Europeans have been kidding themselves that they can be an independent power center that will sometimes align with China uh, will kind of soften the American approach towards Russia, uh, and they can just be kind of floating out there uh, in a real multipolar situation. I just think that doesn't work. I think that uh, 
you know, and, and one of the big drivers of this is Chinese behavior and what's been going on in China, because ever since Xi Jinping uh, became the party general secretary in 2013, China has been moving backwards into being, a, you know, a totalitarian regime uh, where the Chinese Communist Party wants to exercise complete control over the entire society. And it's doing it in a way and with new technology that enables it to create a surveillance state of a sort that we've never seen in human history before. Uh, and I just think that, you know, that project is so at variance with European democratic values that, uh, you know, you, you just, it's just not acceptable for a European country to say, well, you know, on the one hand, there's, uh, China, we don't like what they're doing with the Uyghurs, but on the other hand, there's America, and we don't like, you know, racism in America. I, it, they're just they're just not comparable, and particularly if the Democrats, you know, come back into power and reassert a kind of international role for the United States, I think it will be very wrong to take that position. You see this, uh, you know, I think now in something like the Huawei uh, controversy, where. Uh, you know, a year ago, a lot of European countries were seriously considering letting Huawei build their 5G infrastructure. But I think that as time has gone on, you know, the Trump administration didn't help things by being so crude and vocal in their anti-Chinese rhetoric. Uh, I think they actually hurt their cause more than they helped it by doing that. But I think nonetheless, you know, there are a lot of European countries that are now kind of reconsidering whether they're going to allow uh, this piece of critical infrastructure to be built by a country, a company from a country that really does not share their most basic democratic values. So that's, that's why I think that we are going to be in a more bipolar world. It's not going to be the world of the Cold War, but it's um, unfortunately not going to be this, you know, really multipolar world that, uh, you know, you might have expected back in the back in you know the 1990s or the 2000s. Great, and and one final question, and and this one is, uh, I think, is intriguing partly because of the uh, the, the 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 sheer possibilities uh, that with which you could answer. What worries you the most? Sort of thinking back on on all of your your observations of, of the international order and, and, and the politics, you know, of, of in the U.S.'s inter, you know, interconnection with it going back to the Cold War, the period after, and then, of course, the current moment that we live in. What, what worries you the most going forward yeah. here? Uh, it's hard to choose <laughs> because there's a lot of things that are very worrisome right now, and they're all interconnected with one another. Uh, I suppose that probably one of the most worrisome things is really the this cognitive issue uh, about how technology has uh, really uh, destroyed uh, a kind of cognitive consensus, not just about policies and interpretations, but about basic facts. Most tech disruptive technological change has provoked, uh, you know, uh, methods of regulating the technology and reducing the harms. And I think that will happen in the case of the internet and information technology. But I do think, um, you know, that's something that's quite worrisome. Down the road, you know, I wrote a book uh, in um, 
2001 called Our Post-Human Future, uh, because I believe then and I still believe that in the end, biotechnology is going to be just as threatening to basic human values because it's capable of uh, changing people at a much more fundamental uh, much more fundamental level. It's just that you know we haven't seen that play out uh, fully, but I uh, would imagine uh, that that's going to happen in the next generation. Uh, so you know those two poles of technology, I think you know, present a lot of dangers to our current political order, and I, I would worry about both of them. Thank you very much for for your thoughts there, and and you know it's 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 a timely topic given the the United States election coming up so soon. Uh, talking about the implications of of populism on the both domestic and international arena and thinking about things globally going forward. I want to thank Francis Fukuyama of uh, Stanford University for speaking and, and participating in this dialogue tonight. I want to thank all of you. There were th- more than 300 participants who who uh, logged in to, uh, to listen to this talk. I want to thank the uh, NYU Abu Dhabi Institute and its partner, the uh, NYU DC Dialogues, for for, for uh, sponsoring this event, and I uh, wish you all a, uh, a safe and, uh, uh, and and prosperous rest of your year. And uh, you know, let's 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 hope for the best with respect to uh, uh, liberal democratic institutions. Okay, thank you very much for having me. Bye. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.